You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I am Kenneth. And tonight we are looking at Space Above and Beyond, Season 1, Episode 4, Mutiny. Episode synopsis. The Fighting 58th are on their way for time on Earth, I think. And we're introduced to a new squad member who is on his way back to see his wife. A chick sniper shoots him, of course, and he dies alone. Except for Tank. Tank, being a tank, isn't equipped to deal with this emotionally. And like all things dealing with emotions, that troubles him. The gang is billeted on a deep space freighter, the MacArthur, which happens to be going their way, more or less, after they force the freighter to deviate into a dangerous region of space against the protests of the unpleasant first officer, Porter. Tank is in for some more emotionally unsettling moments to come when he first discovers that the entire engineering crew, six of them, are all tanks like himself. Further, the freighter hauls people in suspended animation and undecanted tanks on their way to a miserable mining job. He goes to Colonel McQueen for help processing his emotions about his dead comrade and the treatment of tanks in general and the feeling that he's missing out because he has no family. Always helpful, the Colonel tells him to man up. The Corps' mother, the Corps' father, and a bunch of BS like that. Thanks, Colonel. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Wong is having a long-distance relationship with a woman he's never met or even exchanged pictures with. Killer, being a hot woman who's probably never had the slightest problem getting men to drool all over her, can't understand the concept of a relationship not based on looks, but based on words and feelings. There's more to this storyline, but I don't care. Dinner at Captain Llewellyn's table takes an uncomfortable turn when Tank, all head up, asks to see the manifest of Tanks in storage. He wants to know if he's got family aboard. Potter, whom I mentioned previously was an unpleasant individual, has some very strong and distinct feelings about the humanity, or lack thereof, of the tanks, and is a jerk about the idea. Luckily, dinner is interrupted by a problem with the nuclear engines, causing them to be taken offline. On the bridge, Potter gets more opportunity to be a jerk by pointing out that it was the dangerous solar flare that caused their problems, and he told you so's to the captain. McQueen deploys his team to help out with the ship. He sends Killer and Wong to the guns in case it was a Chig attack. Snot is assigned to the bridge where he works the radar thingy. And Damphouse, who turns out to be a qualified and gifted nuclear engineer, to the engine room to work with the tank engine crew. McQueen gives Tank the best job of them all. He sends him to help Potter shine flashlights into the cargo holds or something. This allows Tank to shine a flashlight into the cargo hold with the other tanks and Potter to complain and tell him to shine his flashlight in cargo holds with proper humans. On the bridge, Snot can't find anything out of the ordinary on the radar thingy. Still, the colonel tells him to keep looking and trust his gut instincts over the equipment, which seems to be a strange thing to be telling the guy you've assigned to get readings from the techno-gizmo thingies. Damp House and the tanks get the nuclear reactor back online. With the emergency mostly passed, CPO Keats, tank head of the engineering crew, gives Tank the manifest of tanks. Improbably, he finds that his sister is aboard. Family at last! The power goes off again, but the secondary power system also has a 
fire or something. The only way they can save the day is for someone to go down there and spin the wheel that turns off the fire or something. But there's no time to get protective gear. Tank goes in and saves the day just a spite Potter. Snot still can't find anything, so McQueen sends him back to school and asks him to recite what he's learned about the Chig's U-378-class ship. Snot explains that the U-378 is an experimental technology ship that has advanced screw-up-the-enemy technology, such as being able to cause nuclear reactors to fail. Oh! Side note, if the Colonel suspected this all along, might it have been easier to let Snot know in the first place what he might be looking for? With the main engines offline and the secondary engines partially damaged, they need to conserve energy to survive. The only way they can do that is to cut off the power to one of the cargo holds. The math is simple. The human cargo holds each contain 400 people. The tank cargo hold only contains 168 people. Time to pull the plug on the tanks. Captain Llewellyn gives the order to CPO Keats, who refuses it. His math is simple too, or perhaps simple-minded is more accurate. "'Tis better for hundreds if not thousands of people to die, including all 168 tanks and storage, than to just let the 168 tanks die. It is the Chigs, and they've launched missiles towards the freighter. Snot earns his daily paycheck by suggesting launching cargo loaders to draw the missiles off. This works, which is fortunate, since Killer and Wong apparently cannot hit the side of a barn with their laser guns. You may recall this episode is entitled Mutiny, and don't worry, we're getting to it. Keats takes his engine crew to gather weapons and storm the bridge, while Tank and McQueen have a heart-to-heart about family and doing your duty and doing the right thing, etc., etc. It seems McQueen is still willing to sacrifice the 168 tanks, even now that he knows Tank has a sister in there. He does, however, give Damp House five more minutes to get the engines working, not knowing that she's manning the engine room by herself. On the bridge, oops, the tanks kill Potter and Llewellyn. McQueen tries to assume command, but they're not having it if he's going to turn off the power to the tank cargo hold. Tank talks them down, just as the Chig, thinking the freighter was destroyed, comes looking for wreckage to confirm the kill. The tanks are sent back to the engine room to help Damp House, and with no power yet from the main engines, McQueen orders Tank to kill power to the cargo hold, which he does, killing them. This gets them enough power for the bridge that they have a fighting chance and brings the weapons back online. Manually calculating the coordinates, McQueen orders the gunners to destroy the Chig ship, which they do. They are saved. Hurrah! Later, McQueen reminds Tank he did what he had to do and also tosses him a small bone by revealing some of his feelings. Then he leaves Tank alone, who goes to see the corpse of his dead sister. The end. Well, uh, mutiny. As predicted, episode four would be Tank's episode. Yes, Exactly. It's also a McQueen episode. Yes, I guess, I guess, partially, I doubt McQueen gets his own full episode, so it kind of makes sense that he and Tank would get lumped together. I mean, they're second-class citizens anyway. Apparently third, maybe. Maybe even, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. So, what do you think of the episode? Um, Of the four episodes thus far, this is my favorite. It's certainly the watchable of the four so far. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, we're. I think we're going to have some time discussing this trolley problem. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 when I came off watching the episode, I said, "Well, this has got stuff to chew on," which is good. It could have had so much more. 
it's a it is a bit of a disappointment to me that they were not able to i don't know pose this ethical dilemma in a way that wasn't quite so i hate to say black and white but it's black and white it is you have to cut the power to the tanks it's just that simple it the it, you know it's it's hard cold cruel mathematics but if the choice is kill 400 kill 168 or everybody dies including the 400 or the 168 it's it's not a hard call no, i'm sure not. it would not be, it would not be you know i don't think that Llewellyn or mcqueen should have ordered someone else to push the button no they should have done it one they one should have sh- done it themselves you know it's like i understand why you don't want to do this and i can't order you to do this but i will do this and take the consequences i i you know i think that would have been better i think it would have been more interesting if it was 400 tanks or 400 humans or yeah 400 humans and 500 tanks you know if there'd been a if there'd been a numerical imbalance that we could have played with that that then you could you could argue and say well wait you're saying 400 humans and 400 tanks that 400 tanks is worth less than 400 ordinary humans or or even worse you're saying 500 tanks is worth less than 400 tanks or 400 humans you know either of those scenarios would have been frankly more grounds for the mutiny yeah on the other hand i suppose that the reason for having the imbalance edging toward killing the in vitros was to reinforce how a how expendable they are but but wouldn't it be prove they were more expendable if there were more of them than the humans sure I mean, perhaps yeah, yeah. here well, well okay so no here you well, know if you had... there, yeah good well, well we think about it this way like i assume that overall there are in the civilization of 2063 in this series that the humans vastly outnumber the in vitros i would absolutely agree that that's got to be so, true so then there may be there and so maybe it would make sense that there would be more human, more frozen humans than frozen in vitros in cargo holds. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And then, you know, we were never actually told how many humans there were, but what we were told was that most of our crew were frozen humans or most of our cargo were frozen humans. We saw that there was, based on that button board, about a hundred so, you know, if most of their cargo is humans, then there's got to be 50 containers of 400 humans each. That's yes. a lot of humans on that ship. And I'll tell you what, part of, part of the reason that I would have liked to have seen a numerical balance or even an imbalance in favor of, you know, I mean, we, there's obviously more humans. There, there's way more humans, but it's down to the size of a cargo hold. How many people you happen to stick in a cargo hold... Another thing that they could have introduced into it would be whether or not the power requirements were different. Did did uh, a cargo hold of 168 in vitros use more power than a cargo hold of 400 people? That might have made a difference to the equation too. But but you know, they didn't mention it. They didn't go there. It's we just assume each cargo hold uses the same amount of money. What would have been interesting about making the numerical balance more even, or indeed even heavily weighted towards the in vitros? is because we had the character of Potter who could be there to be the jerk to be making the arguments about 
them not being worth kept. So, you know, the drama is there. The drama is in the conflict between him and Tank or him and the colonel or even him and the captain about the value of the lives. Or having the captain be uh, in third position. Tank is like, no, you got to do this. And, and Potter is, you got to do this. And Llewellyn is like, no, I got to look at the numbers here. But they didn't do that. And that that kind of was, I really felt that was a, a missed opportunity uh, in this in this story. But um, the other thing we could take into account is not just the numbers. And I know that this is going to devolve into one of those discussions about personhood. Um, and I would make an argument that says personhood is not just the act of existence. It is the act of being a, 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 a sentient being. So, you know, if I were given the choice between yes. someone who is brain dead in a hospital and someone who was conscious and had said, well, you got to kill one of them. Well, it's going to be the, the brain dead person. That, that's a, that makes sense. That to me is also as a straightforward, I wouldn't enjoy it, but you know, the person in that premise, dead. right. Are the in vitros not brain dead? They have not been decanted yet. They do not have, we're basically told that when they come out at 18, they haven't had a chance to develop their emotion, but we don't know what they're like. Do they have to, how, can they talk? I mean, how would that work? But like, I know, don't they, know. they obviously have to be trained. So they are, they are complete innocence, but at the same time, they may be nothing in, in terms of being a person before the cut, they are decanted. McQueen even kind of makes the concept there. It's like, what choice do they have? They're being sent to this plutonium mine, I believe it was. It and, was. you know, they didn't. They didn't are given a choice. Sure, they're not indentured servants anymore. That's not the way the contracts work. But it sounds very much like to me that they're going out there and then they're going to come alive on this plutonium mine. And sure, maybe they're free people, but what do you want to do? I'd like to go back to Earth. How are you going to pay for that? Uh, you work here for a while. You can afford to pay your way back. It feels to me like forced indentured servitude it at that is. point. But it, no. But I don't know. No consent. There is no concept of consent there. And all those people who are in hibernation are almost certainly consenting to be in hibernation, to accept the risks of hibernation, to accept the risks of taking a flight, a five-year flight on a freighter in a war. You know they've indemnified the company and the everybody that says, you know, I, I might die. It's possible I might die, and therefore I will hold you harmless. Of course. But on the other hand, they have family. They have people who will miss them. They have people that they love, that, that maybe people that, that rely upon them and this job that they're getting, whereas the tanks do not. There's a lot here. I think they could have gone a lot deeper into it, and they could have, they could have really given us a, a, a background. Again, I agree with you completely. Most enjoyable episode so far of the series, without doubt. It's just, I, I, I want so much more out of this episode. I, I want them to go in and, and really, you know, what, you know, we could, you could boil this equation right down to its simplest. Here is a, here is a person in one single person in hibernation. And here is one in vitro who has not yet been born. One of them has to go. How do you pick? And, I, I'm, give, I'm, no. and given the general attitude that Potter epitomizes, 
given that they are related to algae, as he said, mm-hmm. then well, it would be the in vitro. Absolutely. Potter would take the in vitro. I, I completely agree. But how would our heroes, who are supposed to be the good guys, what would McQueen do if he yeah. were put in that position? We know he's willing to sacrifice one of them if that's what it takes to save the crew. He's a commanding officer. He sends people up to die all the time, although admittedly they have consented to be, except for except for Tank, actually, who was drafted. But, exactly. Uh, you know, it, I don't know. I mean, I think if it were me, I still think it would be the in vitro and not because I think they're less of a person. Well, yeah, in a way I do. An undecanted in vitro is less of a person than a person with a life. Now, if we were talking about Tank himself and a person, that would be a very different equation because Tank is also a person and has a life, even if it's not maybe the life he wants, but it feels different to me. I, (laughs) yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I I um, do think it's interesting that they can tell who the in vitros are just by looking at them without looking at the back of their neck. I know that. How many people were looking at the decks? I always thought, hmm. I thought it was weird that when Tank, or now to be fair, in this particular episode, I thought it was weird that Tank got identified right away. But to be fair, he did pull the towel off the back of his neck and Keats was behind him. Yes. When he said, hey, you've come to the right place. We're all tanks down here. So in that one instance, we're all nipple necks down here, what I called them. That's that one instance, um, you know. I'm surprised Tank didn't complain and go, it's a navel. Mickey uh-huh. did that yeah. in a previous episode. Oh, I get it. I get it. Nipple necks is what they can call each other. It's basically their N-word, but everyone else has to call them navel necks. Anybody else calls them that, Will. Don't call me that. All right. Yeah. Well, when I watched this episode twice, once yesterday, then again today, I picked up, of course, on the theme of regarding certain people as lesser than. Mm-hmm. And then treating them oh, that yeah. way. Humans have been doing that for a long time. Yes, and I wondered about what was, was someone trying to send a message by having, basically by casting an African-American actor in the part of a character who spewed some rather vile ideas? Potter. Yes. It's possible. I think I think it I think you're on to something there. Um I think it also is although Damp House was already there. No, Damp Foos. I her name was Damp Foos. It's spelled Damp House. I know but, it, but the P the P H is F. Yeah. She also is an African American actor and they put her in the position of working with the crew of tanks and, you know, very clearly coming out on the side of, I don't care. I don't, you know, if you want to work, uh, I'll indeed. work with you. And so I do think it's possible that they balance Potter and her uh, against each other and intentionally chose someone from a uh, characteristically and historically discriminated against background. So, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me, particularly in the 90s. Particularly in the '90s, now I think it, it. I think there's a lot more effort. Just effort's the wrong word. I think they're a lot more random at it. 
at who they cast as opposed to being more deliberate back a few years. You know, if they yeah. cast a black person, they cast a black person for a reason, not not because they were necessarily the best actor for the job or necessarily whatever. They they you know, it was on the paper that said we are casting a black person for this for this per, uh, role, I think. So yeah, yeah. The other uh the other big theme is this notion of emotion on mm-hmm. behalf of the tanks. Now, I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think that they have explicitly pointed out that tanks are emotionally stunted because they're born at age 18 and have not had emotional development. So, you know, because it does actually make sense. Tank does act like a five-year-old sometimes. Yes. He, is, he is utterly lack of empathy in cases, and he's a, a bit of a, uh, well, <laughs> a bit of a five-year-old uh, at times. But I don't think they've specifically called that out and said this is why he's that way. And until this episode, the question is: Are your emotions learned or inbuilt? Good question. And speaking of uh, emotional stuntedness, L- Lieutenant Vanson. Oh gosh! Oh, wow! Yeah, she was terrible in this episode, wasn't she? Yes. I mean, it's just, and so you get these, a contrast between an emotionally stunted human and an emotionally stunted in vitro. I wonder if, I'm not even convinced that there is any intentional tie between those two, but you call out a good point. She, she is being, she's being shallow. She's being incredibly shallow. Yeah. Although, you know, to be fair to Walt, I mean, do they not able to send pictures? <laughs> uh, on the, well, uh, see, people said the space net, so I guess that's the that's like the space internet. Yeah, that'd okay. be my guess. But you think a still picture at least, maybe a yeah. grainy eight bit black and well, white photo well, or something. You know, you know that that picture of a marine in uniform standing behind you know, behind a flag in front in front of a flag. Yeah. That picture, anyway. Yeah, you know. Oh, I got vibes of, um, I mean, this is not a direct correlation, obviously, but um, I thought of Blade Runner, the replicants. Yeah, okay. Remember that okay. the replicants um, have, the replicants and the in vitros are actually quite different from each other, but the replicants do have a deep-seated need for memories that are not implanted we should i hope some point tank asks him a question or, or someone asks tank a question or you know just presents him with a situation you find a turtle and it's mm-hmm. on its back what yes. do you do <laughs> yes tell me uh, uh, tell me only the positive things that come to mind when you think of your mother <laughs> yeah i'll tell you about my mother okay I I question. We can talk about replicant family here for a second, or Repl- sorry, yes. tank family. Yes, his sister. Kate. Is, he called her Kate. Is she Kate Hawks? I was wondering about how the maybe uh, Vitros get their names. Yes. How? Why is he Cooper if he doesn't have a family? Where is Cooper? Just you know, the form needs two names. Our databases are not set up to handle people with only one name. So uh, yes. you are Cooper. 
I don't know. Um, we have we have one of six names. Pick one. Uh, yeah, Cooper. Yeah, but but speaking of Hawks, I did write this down. Conceived March the sixth, two thousand forty. So he's twenty three years old. Yes, Gene Pool sixteen A, batch uh-huh. Alpha three four three nine, in Philadelphia. And assuming that they get to, if that's what did I say, just twenty three years. Yes, and it's this twenty sixty three, right? The year. Yes, yes. So he's he's twenty three years old. That means he was decanted four years ago. Well, so well, he's probably about five four. or five. Yeah, he behaves about like a four or five year old. Look, yeah, yeah. Why is she his sister? I know they say it's a genetic thing. Is it because they have a limited amount of genetic material and they mix it, mix and match? I'm not sure. I mean, it has to come down to the either the gene pool or the batch or both. Is it possible Are they that creating yeah, the from possible donated that, eggs and sperm? Yeah, probably it, it probably donated eggs and sperm. And so, as I think about this out loud, maybe it makes sense that. Every in vitro to come out of a batch would be a sibling. But that's not what he, that's not what he said. Well, first off, this woman's not in the same batch as him. This yeah, batch okay. hasn't been born yet. Okay, yeah. And and the other guy, Keith, yeah, right. was saying that he's constantly looking for X5, whatever, which is his the genetic code that he's looking for. So it's it could simply be that they just only have a limited number of them, and every once in a while they just reuse them. Yeah. Although in this case with a different gender, um, which would definitely be a different genetic code. It's, I don't know. Half sister, maybe? Well, half I mean, sister. I think that would be sister. enough. Yeah, I think he would I I think he'd be fine with that. I think he'd be fine with that. It could also be that there is no process of egg and sperm here. It could simply be some sort of a mechanical process where they assemble a DNA structure that they want and insert it into either a, a, a hollowed out real egg or a, a, some sort of artificial egg that they've come up with in the future to create the the tanks that they want. Uh, they have a surprising amount of genetic diversity, all things, well, all things considered. Well, I'm assuming that there are still sperm banks in the future. Yeah, but what... <laughs> okay. But would you donate to a sperm bank if you knew it was going to be used for creating in vitros as opposed to helping a, a childless couple conceive? I, I have a feeling that there's that there would be some strong feelings one way or another on that process. There may be. I'm you know, not sure how... You know Potter sure. would Yes, I know exactly. I'm sure that I don't know how this works. <laughs> I hope we learn more about the in vitros. I the the practical matters of the in vitros, I kind of am not, I don't know. Th- there is a certain amount of, I am not convinced by their plight, their discrimination plight. It doesn't resonate. There was me, a so. line, there was a line that Keats said right at the beginning of the, the, the mutiny. Mm-hmm. And it was too many of us have died in your wars. Now I put that, in onto one side, and I recall uh, yeah. a line. I recall a bit of infor- of exposition from the pilot, uh-huh. which is that many that many humans dislike the in vitros because many of the in vitros refused to fight in the AI wars. 
Yep. There was, they were definitely made, and I got the impression that they were created to work in it, fight in the AI wars, and then the AI wars ended fairly soon, and then in vitro's had no, you know, no purpose. But I could definitely see how, particularly an older one like Keats, would have more grievance. Grievance, yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be the right, the right word. You know, I mean, does Tank have a right to have that grievance? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because it wasn't him. It wasn't his family. Because he hasn't got one. Unless he considers all Tanks to be his family. Which he clearly doesn't. And he, because if he did, then he wouldn't worry about finding his sister. You know, if you, if you're living, if you're living the grievances of past generations, you're, you're just, you're just taking on problems of your own and baggage that that's not yours. That, you know, I, I remember, I think it was in, uh, I think it was in Kosovo when, when the fighting was going on over there, however long ago that was. The nineties currently nineties, late nineties. Um, really? Yeah. I, I seem to recall looking information up on that. And I found out that it all went back to somebody burning down a church 400 years ago. And you just like, for crying out loud, people. I know. Or think about, or, or through, throughout the 90s, the uh, the Serbian war effort went back to, was calling up grievances from 1389. Yeah. It, it's like people, people. And hey, you, do you put, it, put it behind you. I know. But this is closer. So I, you know, this is closer in time. You... He'll still be meeting people who fought, perhaps were hideously wounded uh, in the in the war. We don't know, but uh, they are odd. Here's a here's another one for you. Um, would Keats have pushed the button if the captain had said, "Jettison one of the cargo holds of four hundred people"? Probably. See, that doesn't to me that doesn't uh, that doesn't sit well on on Keats. I'm fine with somebody saying I'm not going to push the button, but you know, to go to the point of mutinying for someone that you see as yourself or like yourself or discriminated against in the same way as you, as opposed to, you know, another foreign, it's like, what, what, why? <laughs> this is what would have crossed my mind if I were in his situation. If I felt that way, right? If I, if I felt that way about what was going on. And the captain said, we're all going to die if we don't jettison one of those cargo bays. So jettison that cargo bay of 168 people. And he'd reached over to button 46, which is really, really close to button 45 and button 47. And, uh, oops. Oh, I pushed the wrong one, boss. I I, I thought you said 47 uh, or, you know, because he could have done that. And the day would have been saved. And he wouldn't have had to kill the in vitros, but he would have done a, he would have done a rotten thing. Question is, could he get away with it? Could he go? I doubt it. Well, I, well know, look at the way these buttons fair, are right next to each other. Yes. Well, <laughs> like, uh, there wasn't even fair, a safety there. Are you sure you want to push it though? Well, to be fair, Keats wasn't getting away with anything. Well, he did. He certainly didn't in the end. No. But, you know, again, the captain is the one who should have been pushing that button. Yeah. But the, the captain didn't come across as especially sympathetic either. 
compared to Potter, everybody was sympathetic. But, you know, right. even Keith said the captain's better than most. Yes, exactly. So the captain was like, was semi sympathetic, but he still was hauling a cargo of in vitros who were all probably going to die mining plutonium. And he's a freighter captain. Yeah. I mean, that's considered freight. So were the 400 here, the 4,000 yeah. or however many people were on board that, that ship. I don't, I don't hold that against him. If you're, you know, he probably doesn't own that ship. I he's just a captain. Yeah, he's just a captain on some corporate ship, and and he's been he's been sent to deliver some cargo, legal cargo. Yeah, that that I don't hold that against him. But better than again, most, it was again that. he had the numbers on his side, right? He had the numbers on his side. That was, I am making the rational decision. It's 168 versus 400. I've got the numbers on my side. If he had had to choose between 400 and 400, then we would have known how sympathetic he was. How about, hey, Alexa, give me a random number between one and 100. 23. Push 23. Off it goes. You know? Um, Because, yeah. The computer picked. Computer picked. It's not me. Yes. Well, uh, speaking of the captain, did okay. you recognize the actor? I didn't. I think I was more focused on the fact that his Llewellyn didn't have the right number of L's in it. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Amendola. And I look at the, I know I've seen that name before. I've seen that face before. I've seen it in genre. And thanks to IMDb, I have my answer. He played... Please tell me it's not Star Hunter Redux. No. He played Master Braytac in 26 episodes of Stargate SG-1. Okay. I have yet to get through Stargate uh, SG-1. I did watch the movie. I did watch the movie. And, um, okay. Well, um, there's no reason for me to recognize it, but he, he seems like a, a a character actor I've probably seen elsewhere, too. So, um, But I, I certainly didn't recognize him from anything specific uh, along the way. And speaking of actors in genre, I know he's a minor character, but on the bridge, one of those two crew members who did not get killed, Mercer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Did, did, you, did you recognize that face? No. William Forward. Now put okay, a, that is Lord Rifa. Yes, Lord Rifa. Put, put, put some Centauri hair on that head and you have Lord Rifa. Okay, no, I didn't recognize him, but then he wasn't talking with an outrageous accent. No. So uh, he didn't even have a line. He had a few lines. He was a minor character. Okay. No, I think he not but that's, uh, I do recognize the name. How about that? Yes. I, I got Reef out of that name, so. Actually, right. the, and um, I have, I, I, on my second viewing, I am um, paused and, to, and got minor details. Details. So first viewing, I was getting the story. And the second viewing, I paused and started looking things up and writing things down. <laughs> I know where we're going, um, but okay. Okay. The We open at a the Langston Forward Fire Base on Groombridge. Groombridge 34. 34. Groom, okay. All right. I did look this one up. 
I'd swear they'd used Groombridge in the show before, but it's not in my notes anywhere. Yes, in orbit of Groombridge 34A, which is which is a which is in a binary star system, 11.6 light years from Earth. And we get that from Groombridge is a real one? Yes. You know, they are they are as I'm sure you figured out because I have a whole section on how stupid their astro navigation is in this episode they make a huge i'm gonna call it dumb mistake by using real stars in this show because you use a real star you invite someone to use wolfram alpha and see how dumb their ideas are but okay groomage 34 11 light years from earth Okay. 11.6. Okay, now, and Ele- they're going to Canis Majoris. Star system, he calls it, which is BS. It's yes. a constellation. And I did find that a, a reference to Epsilon Canis Majoris. That's a Adhara. Which is a, which is a star. Uh-huh. And, and Allura, Alludra. Yes, I couldn't, that, find, I, couldn't, I couldn't find those two, but... Okay, um, Adhara I, is Epsilon Canis Majoris, and Aludra okay. is Eta Canis Majoris. Okay, got it. Okay, thank you. Then. Okay, well, this is okay, so then we have a science problem. <laughs> because... Would it be about 2,700 light years wide? Yes, <laughs> Epsilon Canis Majoris is 430 light years from Earth. Is it? Aludra at Eta Canis Majoris is 2,000 light years <laughs> from Earth. And because... They're not in a straight line. You can you can plug those into Wolfram Alpha, and yeah. they are two thousand seven hundred ninety four light years distant from one another. Okay, that's a problem for the episode. That is a big problem for the episode. Which apparently, to navigate between them, you have to go through a space that's two hundred kilometers wide, well, or the solar flares from those two suns will burn you up. Which is why why did they do this? Why why pick real? I mean, clear when he said they were going Canis Majoris star systems right off the bat, it's like no, it's a constellation, and this is the same problem we had in Battlestar Galactica when they said, "Oh, you're looking at the Big Dipper from the wrong side." It's like it doesn't work that way. It's like it just right. doesn't work that way. And then you know, I I wrote the names down, I looked them up, and I happened to stumble across a page that gave the apparently original names, which is what I guess they use now which is Adhara and Aludra for Epsilon Canis Majoris, the original Arabic names. Right. Canina, Canis Majoris. And, you know, it's like, he clearly they looked this up. They couldn't have made that up in a million years. They couldn't have hit three stars in Canis Majoris constellation, three named stars in <laughs> constellation, without trying. There are just too many stars out there for them to <laughs> that right. wrong. But it's so, so wrong. It is. And shall we give the name of the person who got it wrong? Well, oh, the writer? Who is the writer on this one? Stephen Zito. And Stephen Zito was the was a was an executive co-producer from episodes two through eleven. This is his only script for the series. And yet it's kind of the best one so far. It's just like, why did you they also we have a we also have another little time factor here. 
Yes. We have a, we have a time factor. Um, oh, I did go through and write down the GMTs. Yeah, that's that's the course of one day, isn't it? It's 10 hours. They don't really give, it's 10, they don't give dates, they just give times. It feels like they've been on the ship for 10 hours. And they've gone from a star, which is 11.3 light years six. from Earth. 11.6. 11.6 light years from Earth to the narrow 200 kilometer corridor between two stars that are nearly 3,000 light years apart. And neither of those stars is less than 430 light years. Well, none of them could possibly be less than 419 light years from Groombridge 34. And in fact, I could probably punch it in and tell you how far yeah. Adhara is from Groombridge 34 if it's a real, it's a real star. Well, so, so the star is Groombridge 34A. And there's also a Groombridge one of the two, yeah. B. Okay, technically, I think Epsilon Canaris Majoris is uh, is A as well. Yeah, they, because uh, several of those are. I think the furthest the furthest one away is just a really big star, and the nearest one is a binary system, yes. which is why it's brighter, so they can see it. But yeah, but I, I did pay attention to time the second time around. Um, where the uh, crew or our heroes, you know, Marines arrive on the MacArthur at 512 GMT. And then Hawks arrives in the engine room at 730 GMT. At 821 GMT, over his protest, Potter gave the order to lay in the course for Canis Majoris, uh-huh. or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> um. And the, okay, the at, blood corridor, the yes, and at fourteen oh seven GMT, the where we got confirmation on McQueen's intuition uh-huh. that it was a Chig fighter. At fourteen thirty two GMT, the mutiny began. Uh-huh. At 15.02 GMT, the Chick fighter was moving in to look for wreckage to confirm the kill. I found the constant references to time annoying and pointless in this episode because it it also detracts from the story because it does imply it's all the same day or the same date, I should say. And obviously it's impossible for them to be that close to those stars in that length of time on their way to the Saratoga, it it just doesn't make it's just poor structure. And it I don't remember any other episode hammering those dates and times or the times down quite not, as not so far often. Yeah, um, if at all. I mean, I'm sure there were somewhere here we are on a planet, and they're telling us what the planet is. But here, this is just like the Queen's coming through a door. It's two fifteen in the afternoon. Who cares? What? Why does that matter? It's not like there was any time deadline or anything where, oh, we're going to blow up at 1,700 hours, which yeah. would have made more sense, you know, if they had some sort of a deadline, but they didn't. So why did they do that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this episode made more sense to me before I started looking at stars. Yeah. Yeah. That was oops, that was a problem. <laughs> That was a big problem. <laughs> well, that really was. Um, so here's okay. Uh, let's we we don't want to we've we've bagged on we bagged on Killer for being um, 
emotionally stunted, shallow. Yes. Let's let's talk about Snot or or West, if you will. Um, West, yes. The commander, the colonel, puts him in front of the radar thingy and says, "Tell me what's going on with a radar thingy." And every time he reports what's going on with a radar thingy, the colonel says, "That's not what I want to hear." What, what, tell me what your gut tells you. It's like, yeah, but, gut. Yeah. what's my gut supposed to tell me that the, that the radar thingy is not telling me, am I supposed to just make stuff up Colonel? Am I supposed to go, uh, you know, I, I think, um, I think there might be a thing out there. Uh, what's your evidence for that? Not a damn thing. Just my gut. You told me to use my gut. Uh, every time I tell you there's nothing there, you say, go back and use your gut. So I thought, my gut says, tell the colonel what he wants to hear. There's something there. Okay, where is it? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, that was bad writing. Yeah. And then he comes up to that part about, tell me what you know about the U-378, whatever it was. And, it was. Uh, oh, I got it, it was right. the U-378. And he's like, oh, well, it's an experimental fighter that they use. It comes out here. It has all sorts of this cool spacey technology that can mess up ships, like turning off their nuclear. Oh, my gosh. Why didn't somebody think of that earlier? And McQueen's sitting there. It's like, I thought about that like half an hour ago, but I was hoping you'd come to it before we all got killed because I couldn't be bothered to tell you that was my suspicion. Because, you know, I'm thinking more information is better. How about, hey, what do you think? There might be a U-378 stealth vehicle out there doing stuff, and then and then Snot could be looking at this going, hmm, well, if I just reverse the polarity of the neutron flow on this radar thingy, maybe I'd be able to see it. But he never gets that opportunity because he's working in the dark. Yes, yeah, we're, we're supposed, I suppose, to think that McQueen is a wonderful commanding officer. He is not. <laughs> he is He's definitely not. No. Although he is very forgiving of mutiny and... Uh, a lot of things. Yeah. Going AWOL. Going AWOL, yep. Yep. Um, Destroying property that belongs to the Marine Corps. Yep. Definitely that. Definitely that. Uh, you know, so the question is, now that we know that Tank is emotionally a five-year-old, what's the current... 15-year-old? 20-year-old? Um, I'm getting, guessing closer to 20, given the, the color of his hair. Uh, Steve Martin went gray pretty early. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it does happen, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I would put him in his quote-unquote 40s, uh, looking at, at him. Um, he could even be older than that, but sometimes it's hard to tell. But um, yeah, I, 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 so then you think, well, is he really particularly suited for being a commander then? If he's, or maybe it's because he is emotionally stunted, he's good to be a commander. Yeah, just pull the switch. It's what we got to do. You know, look, just send them out to their death. It's what we got to do. I got no empathy. I don't feel bad about this. I don't think it's a, a su I mean, it's a suicide mission, but that's their job. Well, you know? except that think back to the pilot and there was that scene where McQueen sat down in that room full of pilots and spoke to them very kindly and empathetically. That's true. That's true. And somebody complimented him on it, and he shot him down. Right. About that. So it could just be he. he somebody wrote it for him, and he, he resigned. <laughs> no, I don't but think even, that's the case. Even but, in this episode, know. even in this episode, he had his moments of empathy. Yeah. 
I don't think he's supposed to be a bad commander. I just think that he's been, you know, it's like John Koenig on Space 1999. He's supposed to be a great commander. Supposed to be. Actually tally, tally up what he does, ignore what people say, and mark down what he actually does. He's a lousy commander. Same is true with McQueen here, it seems like. Yeah. He, he's poorly written. Speaking of, of bad, bad military uh, cliches and and whatnot. So they're on Groombridge, they're on Langston base, and they're hurrying to catch their ship, and they come under fire and from a sniper, which like, okay, all right, fine. And so everyone take cover. But what's he doing and what's all his troops doing? They just immediately pull their guns out and just start shooting blind up towards wherever that shot came from. Nobody looks. Nobody knows where it is. Somebody finally goes, Flapper in the tower! Cheek in the tower or something. And and then eventually they all start, start to get out of the way and hide behind things. It's like, that's very poorly staged and done. And wow, I cannot believe we meet another monk, was his name. I believe. Was monk. Who uh, we've never seen before, but he's obviously one of the gang with a fighting 58. And he's going home to see his wife for the first time in a year. Just sign my death warrant and slit my throat right now. There it is. I mean, the uh, the space above and beyond equivalent of a red shirt. It's like it's um, you know, give him a can, name and he's dead. Give him, you give him a name and um, you never seen him before, and he'll die horribly somewhere, somehow. Yeah, Solomon Monk. Um, by the way, I do have Which is a some great question. Name. Yes, yes, I yes, I do have some other questions about the Marine Corps of this series. <laughs> we it started with um, haircuts. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And did you um, notice that Monk was not the um, finished Marine? <laughs> no, he was not. He was not. You know, the war is going badly, and uh, you know, a little portly. That's fine. Chicks can still shoot you and, and save yeah. a bullet for somebody else. Yeah, and by, and, by, and people have been eating um, field rations for who knows how long, but okay. Yep, dehydrated field rations, yep. I, I'm still having trouble believing they were going home to Earth. But, yeah. Because it... There's a war on out there. Sure, okay, you get leave. That's fine. Here we are, they're on this planet? They're obviously a, on a planet. A planet, yes. It's obviously got a base on it. I mean, okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. We'll come back to that in a minute. And and they're going, Monk is talking about that he's going home, and they're all talking, well, gosh, they're not eating field rations. It sounds like they're going home for leave, but why are they being taken to the Saratoga then? Back to their ship. That's a good, it's another example of, of bad writing. And where is, where is the, where is the ship going? Not, where is the MacArthur going? They have, they have, Humans in suspended animation for five years. Yeah, the um, they're they going. Oh, they're going ultimately to the Corvus star system. Was that their final definite destination, the Corvus? Where was? Yes. Wasn't that where the in vitros were going? Yes. Okay, but but that doesn't mean that's where the humans were going. Mm, that's where the that's where the in vitros were going to the plutonium mine, right? In the Corvus system. Was Corvus real? I didn't look it up. I assume it is. It is. And do we know how far away from anywhere it is? 
Uh, it is, Corvus is a constellation, and there is a star in it called Cor- Gamma Corvi. Now, this is another one right. of those where we get it's a, a constellation, constellation again. Yeah. Um, the distant in light years on the, these are all over the map. But what well, constellations are. Yeah. Yes, I know exactly, but it's everything from 40, the stars in that constellation are everywhere from 48 light years away to 1,753 light years away. Yeah. <laughs> so even still not uh, not reaching as far away as Eta Canis Majoris. <laughs> Epsilon Canis Majoris. No, Eta. Eta is the furthest one. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's... Um, Wow. Okay, so we don't know where this ship is going. We don't know why they happen. Why did they get deviated to go to the Saratoga? Uh, why they have to take such a dangerous route? I was going to say, surely if the navigation corridor it's between two suns that are close to each other, just go around them. But exactly, you know, when I when I was thinking that, I didn't realize that they were, you know, nearly three thousand light years apart, and going around them might have caused them a little difficulty or something, and not anywhere on the direction that they're going. So. I wow, just not not good. But okay, let's let's carry this one all the way to its conclusion. What did we learn in the first episode? We were establishing our first colony in space. Yes. Where the heck is Langston? Okay, where the look. heck is the where the heck is are these do you not consider outposts? To be colonies. kind of like colonies. I mean, I do up to a point. Yeah, I kind of do too. It feels to me like mankind is all over the darn galaxy, and yet we're supposed to be, you know, surprised three episodes ago that that human beings encountered their first aliens. I was thinking about that. Wait a minute. This is not even something on the edge of the solar system. This is, granted, it's one of the closer stars to our solar system, but. It's beyond the solar system. Yeah. Come on. This is every bit as bad as this whole thing between star systems and constellations is every bit as bad as Space 1999's This is Earth's Galaxy. I remember that one. It has nine planets. Great. More than one. Or the original Battlestar Galactica, which did not have a difference between a solar system and a galaxy. Right. That too. They did that one as well. They're totally, totally illogical. Um, and then I think there's one where they didn't know the difference between, I don't know, it's like, we're leaving our solar, our star system. It's like, surely you left your star system like seven episodes ago. Probably wow. you must have left seven episodes ago. I remember ago. one episode of the old Battlestar Galactica where Adama, was played by Lorne Green, was was sitting on the bridge and absolutely enthusiastic. We just left our galaxy. And thought, really? I was thinking that we actually said we've left our star system. I, I, I'm thinking that the equally is bad. Equally is bad. We're now in uncharted territory. It's like, what? How? Nah, never mind. It's, you, you get it wrong at every level. And they are doing the same here. And I, I find that unforgivable in 1995. It's kind of unforgivable in 1975, but it's definitely unforgivable in 1995. Yes. People should know better. Especially when they've actually looked up real stars and yes. real 
constellations, which he then referred to as solar system. Well, star systems, which the star system is a solar system. I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong on that distinction. But yeah, wow. No, it's it's wrong. It's really wrong. So I, I, I they really do not have a coherent, they do not have a coherent, I don't say worldview, but we'll use worldview, universe view about distance, travel time, what mankind is doing out there, oh, how long mankind has been out there. Uh, it's just none of it. They just really do not have. No, the closest parallel that comes to my mind immediately with regard to to abbreviated travel time is any of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. Yeah, but at least Star Trek does have warp drive, even in J.J.'s, J.J.'s yeah. twisted um, version of it. But yeah, so no, but even but then it's um, there's like it, it's instantaneous anywhere from one point in the galaxy to another. No. Oh, no, I, I, care, I, think, like, I mean, from Earth to Vulcan is what, a minute? It wasn't quite that fast, but uh, it was pretty short. But to be fair, I think we know where, I think Vulcan is in Epsilon Arandi. I want to I want to say that that Epsilon comes to mind. Iridani, is that the one? Iridani, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what many people, many people say it is. I think, I think that may have come from the Starfleet, the technical, the Franz Joseph's yeah. technical manual along long ago warp drive takes as long as warp drive takes and, and it always has to some degree just as long as we need the dialogue to last to get to the right. place that we're going but i you know i can believe earth and vulcan are relatively close compared to say the klingon frontier or you know the the far the far reaches yeah well but yeah these, these guys are destroyed. they got like a freaking fire powered motors on the back of that thing. It's like, that looks like propulsion motors to me. Chemical propulsion motors. You're not going to get... There is no warp drive in this universe. There are no jump gates in this universe. They do get... They can can eventually somehow, I'm not sure how, catch a lucky break and get a wormhole. Once in a while. Yeah. Once you're out, wormholes are apparently a lot easier. But there wasn't even any discussion of that in this episode no. you know this is just we got to fly between these two stars that we can literally see even though they're three thousand light years apart <laughs> right i know oh this is some big stars this is yeah, big big stars it's just oh wrong i don't know that i have anything else on the episode well i, w- I did notice that we did get a little character moment so even though this was more of a hawks and mcqueen episode we got character to little character moments on some of the other main characters and um, I did write this down, and we'll see how this pays off in the next episodes. Um, Vanessa Damfus, um apparently graduated from Caltech. She interned at a nuclear power plant for two summers. Her father was a nuclear chief engineer. So this is this was why McQueen sent her down to the nuclear engine. This is this is why the military would have sent her to work in an engine room somewhere instead of yes. putting her on the front line as, as a grunt. Yeah. Okay. Pilots are not strictly grunts, but still, you don't take somebody who's trained in nuclear engineering. Yeah. Okay. And 
and go, yeah, you're a pilot now. Yeah. <laughs> like, why, why is she, why is she even there? Couldn't she get a job somewhere? I mean, well, well there is a course of people. So some people have joined the military out of a sense of patriotism. I've heard of that. I mean, especially after that one, but I've heard especially, of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, we have some people do that. Yeah. But every day you bring up a good point. Why is she um, flying a space plane and moving around on the ground? Why is it she in the engine room of the Saratoga or someplace? Yeah. That would seem to be a far better use of it. I mean, I know if you go into the military as a nobody, like, I don't know. Well, even West wasn't a nobody. Like, like Coop. Okay, like Tank. He was a nobody, as far as we can tell. You go into the military, they put you through boot camp, they test you, and then depending on how good you do on your test, I can't remember what the test is called, but, you know. As bad you then. I really don't remember. And my dad, obviously, the last person in my family in the military was in the Korean War. And, you know, my dad scored second highest on the on the test. And basically, they just start at number one and they say, what do you want to go to school for? And they have slots for the different. Yeah. And I forgot what number one cut, but it's the one everybody takes if you're number one. And then my dad took meteorology because that sounded interesting to him. But, you know, you get to, you get to pick if it's not wartime. To be fair, it's not wartime. And it wasn't wartime when they joined. No. Either. It was still peacetime. And then, you know, you go off your way. So presumably these guys should have gotten to the point where they could have picked going into being pilots. But again, you know, I don't know what happens when you come in and you're like, I thought if you came in and you were qualified, that was a fast track down that path. Like, oh, you've got a degree in nuclear engineering? Well, we could put you in the kitchen, or let's see, what else could we do with you? The uh, engine room. Nuclear engine room, yeah. Nuclear reactors or something, somewhere. Yeah. Why waste that? Or somebody's just going to go out and get shot. Yeah. Yeah, that's I what mean, you have people, tanks for. There are, people, um, there are people getting shot all around her. Yep. <clears throat> I got to say, though, I am definitely calling her damp mouse from now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I haven't yeah I didn't think the secondary characters deserved uh, deserved funny names or condescending names as, as you may interpret one way or the other. Yes. Anyway. Do you have anything else on the episode? Uh, no, those are all my notes. Perfect. Uh, what's our next episode? It is Ray Butts. Oh yes, Ray Butts. B U T T S. B U T T S. I did. I did. Reminds see... me of the episode of the X Files for some reason. Yeah. But okay. I did see the one-line little summary on the top of the IMDb page, and apparently there's a character named Ray Butts, and he's out for redemption. Fair enough. Or something. I almost feel like that was the name of a guy that was in one of the earlier episodes, wasn't it? Wasn't that the guy, the furthest man from No, from we, Earth? Never, we, never, we never got his name. Huh. I feel like... Or maybe I'm thinking of someone else, uh, but... There was that colonist who, who had no name, that we got. I'm talking about that they that they locked up and Th- that that guy. Yes, we, we never got a name. I was reason I was thinking that might be the guy, but okay, I don't see it in my notes though, so I didn't write it down if that was the name that I somehow got. But I saw that name and I thought, wait a minute, that's that's the guy. All right, well, Kenneth, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. 
Well, listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time when we look at Space Above and Behind for Mr. Ray Butts. <laughs> you've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at FusionPatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the Bugs episode, The Revenge Effect. Where we discuss the difference between a sequel and the second of two parts, when heroes are allowed to commit manslaughter and how this differs on each side of the pond, and the state of password security in the 1990s. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.